You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of the Bo's Nose Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and it's another, well, it's another typical spring day in Oregon where we had bright sunshine for a while, it's rained for a little bit, it's been blustery, and we're just happy it's not just raining like it has been here in Oregon because we've had our share of rain over the weekend, didn't we? And Monday, uh, I think our 72-hour totals were close to four inches here in town or something. Uh, it was a lot of rain. But uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on here in Lane County. We've got a new sheriff coming in. We've got all sorts of other stuff to talk about. But I want to real quick tell you the phone number here because one of the things we do at the Bose Nose Show is we'll take the show in the direction of the caller's subject. If you call into the Bose Nose Show, we'll talk about what you want to call talk about. So give us a call, 646-721-9887, and just press one because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and don't forget to press 1. So we do have a new sheriff in town, so to speak. Actually, we don't quite yet. He'll get sworn in when the old sheriff's retirement becomes official on the 16th at noon. So next Tuesday at noon, we will be getting a new sheriff, and his name is Cliff Harold. And Cliff is currently our chief deputy in the sheriff's department, which is the number two position, kind of the XO of the sheriff's department. And, uh, you know, if you know, those of you that have served in the military probably know this, the XO is kind of the, uh, the enforcer on, on the boat um, and uh, the person that has to maintain discipline while the, uh, the commander gets to kind of be a little bit more friendly with the crew. Uh, so it's amazing that knowing that, that he's played this role as XO for a while, I can't believe the number of supporting emails from folks currently in the sheriff's office that we got saying he should be the next sheriff. Cause you know, he's had to play the, the, the tough guy. He, you know, the one thing is the chief deputy, the, the one department that reports directly to the chief deputy is the internal affairs deputy and that investigation team. So uh, anything that's been going, you know, sideways with, with a, with a employee, he's involved in it. It's basically the HR director for the, um, for the sheriff's office in some ways as that chief deputy position. So the fact that he got so much support from the, the line staff and, and the union um, involved is pretty amazing. But, you know, he, Cliff is a, a unique guy, um, really humble guy, but really articulate in a lot of ways. And he just knocked his interview um, out of the ballpark. Get a chance. We actually televised the two interviews we did. I want to really appreciate um, retired police chief um, Ed uh, Ethel, who uh, was police chief of La Palma, um, California, and uh, La Palma, I think it is, uh, California, uh, recently, after 30 years of experience in the police department, um, it was nice of him to put in an application, give us an option and, and a choice. Um, but it was pretty obvious um, that as a police chief, he didn't have experience in running a corrections facility. And one of the things that 
folks don't realize is two thirds of the employees in the sheriff's department are in the jail. They, they, that's the major function of the sheriff's department is running a correctional facility. A correctional facility that also happens to be the largest mental health facility in Lane County because it's de facto that 65% of the jail population has a diagnosed um, or diagnosable mental health issue. It just happens to be the largest population of folks with mental health issues in Lane County. And what's interesting is not only did we as a board vote unanimously to point Cliff at one o'clock, and this was scheduled before um, the sheriff uh, announced that he was going to retire, it was scheduled months ago, um, we had our annual inspection of the jail. We're required by state law to annually go through the jail and inspect it to make sure it's being run properly and conditions are, are okay for the inmates, et cetera. And that's it. so we had our annual inspection today too. So we actually had four out of the five commissioners were in jail today for about an hour and a half or so. <laughs> so probably at that point in time, uh, folks would have loved it maybe if the doors got locked and, you know, Lane County would have been safe with all of the, you know, the politicians locked safely away for the most part. Uh, but didn't happen, but they once again passed its flying colors. And one of the interesting parts of the tour was going through the, the um, housing area that's specifically for folks that are having trouble with mental health issues. And they purposely put them up in an area where it's on the third floor with lots of windows and natural light. And there's actually light switches in the inmate cells so the inmates can control the level of light in their cells um, and their windows to look out of. And they found that that situation actually calms them down. It had originally been in another newer, believe it or not, one of the newest sections of the jail built in 1998 where there are absolutely no windows all the lights are controlled from the central deputy's control station, so the inmates have no control over when the lights are on or off in their cells. And it's just, you know, inmates with mental health issues in that section of the jail would escalate in their in their um, reaction to that. So putting them in this other section of the jail was a, a major improvement. It's Funny, it's one of the oldest sections of the jail with the, the natural light and the and the switches in the jail cells. So, kind of funny that you know somewhere in 1979 they kind of knew what they were doing when they designed that part of the jail, and in 1998 they somehow or another forgot that and designed an area of the jail that was just um, not conducive to the mental health of the inmates. So. Um, kind of interesting thing, but it's really interesting that Cliff in his interview, which I recommend anybody go back and watch uh, this morning's board meeting and the two interviews, and you can kind of see why the choice was obvious for us. And what's amazing is Cliff would have been an outstanding candidate in a field of 24, 30 people. He was just, he was amazingly um, well spoken in his interview and his resume is great. He's worked in the jail initially as a, as a newbie deputy and and just you know doing his shift work in the jail to um, in 2015 he was a captain in the jail uh, kind of second in, in command to um, Dan Buckwald at the time and learned about the management of the jail and how complex that is. Um, you know, because the jail never stops. It's a 365, 24-hour day affair. And it it's, you know, where people live and eat and sleep. You know, it's really, you know, it's not just where people come to work. So it's a, a as a, as a entity, it's a, it's a really complex place to manage from medical care to food service to, how people move in and out of booking and, and get released, um, you know, visitors, access to attorneys, pretrial services, 
They have a courtroom actually in the jail to do arraignments so they don't have to move the inmates for arraignments. Um, you know, it's a complex entity and it was really important to have somebody that truly understood that and Cliff understands that. More importantly, also understands that a lot of the, the most troubled people they deal with come in under municipal charges from municipal police forces for um, basically behavioral crimes of, of, you know, breaking the peace of, of the, the neighborhood, um, trespass, um, creating a disturbance, you know, those sort of things driven by a mental health issue. And what he's realized and what he's hoping to work towards with partners as he's sheriff is there needs to be someplace else for those folks to be taken other than just charging them with a crime and booking them into the jail. There needs to be a mental health crisis center in Lane County as an option to the Eugene Police Department, Springfield Police Department, even our deputy sheriffs at times, when they run into these individuals that are, you know, breaking the public peace and need some kind of intervention. And jail is, in a lot of ways, not the correct intervention. In fact, it will quite often escalate them that, that you know, concrete building that's noisy, lights on 24 hours a day in some areas, doors banging, other inmates going off. It's just not conducive to somebody that's already kind of escalated enough to have the police called on them. So really needs to be that that crisis center and Cliff spoke eloquently in his in his interview about that issue. And uh, I'm really just happy that he got that support of the board on a unanimous vote. And I think he will make a great uh, interim sheriff to fill out the rest of um, Byron Trapp's term. I I would bet that he's going to run for election in 2020 because um, he's a pretty young guy. He's only got, um, I think, 24 years on the force. He's got 28 years in the, in the sheriff's department. And that's explainable because he spent four years as an explorer working with the sheriff's department in a volunteer basis. Um, so he's been paid for 24 years to be in the sheriff's department. So he's a pretty amazing guy. Um, and he's a Lane County native. Um, family owned a dairy farm, so he learned hard work and working 365 days a year because dairy farms, you've got to milk cows every day. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's Christmas or Easter, they still got to get milk. And there's other things that have to be done at dairy farms like feeding and cleaning and other things, you know, all that equipment's got to be clean. Um, it, it's a uh, it's hard work to be a dairy farmer. Um, and what's kind of interesting is uh, two of the commissioners, uh, Commissioner Pat Farr and Commissioner Pete Sorensen have experience in childhood as being dairy farmers. And I have to credit Commissioner Joe Bernie with this. He goes, I think I learned something today, you know, cause they all mentioned their dairy farming experience. And he says that if you're a dairy farmer, it's a lot of hard work and most of you find a way to get out of it. <laughs> as he's talking to people that, that obviously maybe had involvement in dairy farming as a child and were in all three separate career paths, no longer dairy farming. <laughs> but, you know, he has that background of being a native of Cresswell, uh, worked at the gas station in Cresswell as a kid, um, and, you know, grew up here, went to Lane Community College, um, you know, to, to get his associate's degree. So, you know, he's just so committed to Lane County, yet he's he's gone to the FBI's um, National School in Virginia for training. He's got, you know, excellent credentials. He'll make a great sheriff. So, you know, one of the things you get to do as a commissioner, um, you know, we're the highest elected body for the county. When some of these elected positions come open, we're the 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 body that appoints um or recommends okay. if it's you know the uh 
a state senate district that is entirely within lane county where that you know we we voted um to replace chris edwards in uh senate district seven you know when it came time to replace um a, a um, tax assessor we did that and we now this is the second sheriff i've actually voted to replace so it's one of the roles that you know as you're electing a county commissioner they may be actually um, proxy voting for you on electing at least to finish out um, terms of service many other elected officials so you know it, it's a, such an important role we play as county commissioners uh, in, in that aspect and you know one of the things the sheriff office does you know and, and you might have seen them around a little bit is is helping um, you know particularly their search and rescue folks deal with um, some of the emergency situations we had uh, you know the big snowstorm our search and rescue people did a lot of welfare checks on people that were isolated by um, downed trees uh, the uh, deputies themselves did a lot of work uh, a lot of shift hours during that time now recently during this flooding event they they were out you know notifying people through their reverse 911 system by the way one of the short pieces of time that cliff wasn't in the sheriff's office he was hired by the city of uh, cottage grove is their 911 uh, call dispatcher um, in, in cottage grove for a short while so he uh, even has experience in the 911 center um, but yeah you know, the that they did a reverse 911 call to do the uh, evacuations down below um, Dorena Lake along the Rao River in the floodplain there. They sent out the search and rescue volunteers and themselves to go out and do the door-to-door -door notification because not everyone has a cell phone or landline to get a reverse 911. Um, and not everyone's paying attention to the news nowadays because people stream their TV with no commercials and they stream their their music with no commercials so you may not always get the word out to the, the entire community when you're set, trying to evacuate an area so you actually do door-to-door -door work on that and uh this whole flooding's been a, a pretty interesting situation and one of the things they help do is to you know help our public works guys identify roads that need to be closed you know eventually and one of the things that happened was so many roads are being closed uh quite often we couldn't get signage up before you know the the water was deep enough you shouldn't be driving through it and uh, really uh, it's amazing how many people will try anyway and even if we put the signs up that say road closed there are people that will drive around the signs which leads me to what were they thinking and we've got our new logo which i believe if i've primed my my uh my producer robin enough should be over my left shoulder there where i'm pointing um if you're watching on facebook live what was the guy thinking when he drove around the road closed barriers on river road where the willamette river is crossing river road in places and back and flowing strongly he drove down there in a full-size pickup truck it looks like from the photograph i saw on the front page of the city section of the register guard today if you want to you know go to the register guard uh site and uh if you go to the the lane county drying out um, article they actually have a video of him being rescued on their page a 75 year old man who doesn't look like he should be out in floodwaters you know didn't look that mobile uh they had to had to come out to him with a heavy pumper engine truck to withstand the current and they had to run a ladder between his his pickup truck that had gotten lifted up and washed sideways into the ditch beside river road and was you know sitting at about a 45 degree angle to the side with 
with pretty far underwater on the side that was in the ditch and they had to run a ladder between the um, the fire engine and the window of his truck and get it all secured and then they had to help him cross that ladder over the fire engine and drive him out of there. I'm pretty sure his pickup truck is not going to survive that um, incident or it's at least going to need some pretty significant work. So my what were they thinking award for the week goes to that 75-year-old pickup driver gentleman from Junction City who drove around the road closed barriers. How many times do we have to go out in public, whether it's our public information officer or we get the news media to repeat this over and over again, turn around so you don't drown. You know, I can't tell you how many rescues the Lane Fire Authority folks did, how many rescues South Lane Fire's done from people, how many rescues Junction City Fire's done in this county. You know, I know of at least four that Lane Fire Authority did um, on Cantrell Road, on on um, Erickson Road, you know, and, and they're places that everybody knows floods, you know, in Lane County. Um, they did one on Vaughn Road out in No Tie. You know, it's like people get a clue. Don't drive into floodwaters. And if you have a modern car, really don't drive in because we've got a video for you uh, that I wasn't really aware of and Robin wasn't, but she found online. And we're going to run a short one minute clip here. And hopefully Robin can bring it up so I can actually see it on my screen too, um, of why you shouldn't drive into floodwaters even six inches deep if you're in a vehicle that's a modern vehicle because of where they put the air intakes and what water does to an engine. It's impressive. So Robin, you want to run that video? Here we go. So hopefully that audio came through for everybody, but what you probably saw if you were watching Facebook Live and and could hear the video, if you couldn't hear the video, partway through that, he jacks up a car that had, had driven through six inches of water, and with the newer intakes in some of these cars, which are actually aimed down and come out through the, the bumper, you know, is where they pick up water, pick up the air for the engine. They can suck water up into the engine, which is not compressible and, and, and blows the engine up. But he jacked that up and showed where, particularly with his Chrysler, it blew the bottom of the engine out. Now you can imagine that basically totaled the engine. So that's going to probably be, you know, ten fifteen thousand dollar car repair. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically totaling a car. So these newer vehicles, the intakes are so low on them, you shouldn't even drive through six inches water. So if you don't have, you know, and, you know, that's just stand, you know, still standing water, let alone having a current. And you saw, you know, if you went to the register guard and saw that picture, that was a full-size pickup truck that was washed off the road. And fortunately, that, that current wasn't quite enough to wash that fire engine off. But up near Corvallis, 
and I believe it was on Peoria Road in one of the places that was being washed over, some idiot drove around a road clothes sign in a dump truck thinking he could get through, and he ended up getting washed off in a dump truck because there is moving water. Moving water is an amazing force of nature. I mean, look how easily it, it moves logs that weigh a ton down you know, downstream, you know, even if they are buoyant to some degree, it still has the force to move those things at 10, 15 miles an hour with the current. Don't drive through standing water. because If you have a newer car, don't drive through moving water in particular, and don't drive around a road closed sign, or you just might end up on my radio show under what were you thinking? But, you know, the the flooding just is another reminder to us and the folks uh, up in Oak Ridge, I feel sorry for them because once again, they ended up isolated from the world as Highway 58 was shut down both east and west of Oak Ridge, making there really no way to be in the town. Um, you really have to think about um, your emergency preparedness. And I wonder how many of those folks that were in that floodplain area downstream of, of Dorena Lake, Dorena Reservoir, and the uh, along the Rao River had a go back. You know, that included things like their medications and some pet food for their pets that they had to suddenly throw them in a car and, and run off to a hotel room or a shelter. That sort of pre-planning is really important. You're not all, you know, the snowstorm, most people got caught stuck in their houses uh, in this case, people had to leave in a hurry, and, and how prepared were they to leave? So um, really need to, you know, people need to start doing little things at a time. I know it's expensive sometimes to try and put together a go bag all at once, but, you know, most prescriptions will allow you to renew them, and the insurance companies will pay um, after 23 days, it's been on the insurance company, some are 21, some are 23, so you can renew a little bit early every month. So you can start building up a couple, you know, a week or two's worth of pills as you renew your prescription and set them aside and and, um, and put them in, you know, one of those pill count day by day pill counters or something like that. And put that in your little to go, your go knapsack um, without a lot of cost to yourself. Um, you you know, an ex, you know, as you buy your pets, you know, a bag of pet food, get a Ziploc bag and put some aside and put it in that bag. You know, it won't cost you a lot to do that a little bit at a time. You know, the necessary things you want to have in that go bag. Um, same thing for putting aside, you know, your two weeks worth of food and water in your house. Don't have to buy two weeks all at once. Put aside a meal. You know, every time you go to the grocery store, buy a meal's worth of non-perishable items and, and put that aside in, in your in your you know storage cupboard or wherever you're going to keep your emergency food supply. You know, do those little things at a time to prepare. And, and that's really what will get people through. So I want to take a break here and remind folks that we don't have to talk about the new Sheriff, we don't have to talk about uh, people driving in the floodwaters or emergency preparedness. We can talk about what you want to talk about on the Bose Nose Show by just giving me a call, 646-721-9887, and just press 1 so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1 so we know you want to get on the show. And we'll talk about what you want to talk about on the show. If not, we'll talk about what Jay wants to talk about on the show. And I mentioned that our board got some training yesterday on our quasi-judicial role in land use decisions. And, you know, one thing I was really aware of because I did a lot of land use and land development work in my career. In fact, I actually had been before the Board of Commissioners back in the 90s when they were hearing an item of a developer that was a client of mine um, and, and appeared on a, a Greenway decision 
that was before the board um, in their quasi-judicial role. But it seems that maybe some of our commissioners weren't quite so prepared for that, that were recently elected in the last year. And maybe some of our commissioners need a little bit of a reminder of some of that role. But it's a really critical role the commissioners. And it's a place where instead of us making policy and legislating in our legislative role of um, you know, amending the counting code or putting things into uh, lane manual, uh, you know, or even um, writing the um, land use code, which is a, a legislative action. When people apply to the county to make uh, changes in zoning or some special uses, we actually end up in a role, or when the, the hearings official's decision is appealed, we can end up in a role where we're actually applying law and, and judging whether an application has provided sufficient evidence in the record to meet the criteria that we've defined in the law to make a decision of approval or denial of a land use decision. And it's one of the few places where the commissioners have to make a decision. When somebody applies for uh, an approval of a land use process, we either have to approve them as they applied, approve them with some conditions, or deny. We can't just go, oh, you know what, we don't feel like making a decision on this. Uh, we're going to let it die because no one made a motion and that's it. We can do that on legislative stuff all the time. We can look at it and go, you know what? Maybe we really didn't want to make a change in the law. Let's just let it go. And we're allowed to do that legislatively. Land use and that quasi-judicial role, we have to come to a decision, which some of our commissioners learned sort of in the hard way early on. One of the reasons why we had this training is they didn't realize that um, they thought that they could just not make a decision on a land use application to change a zoning from uh, rural residential to rural commercial because they didn't support the application. They thought they could just, you know, not approve it. They voted against a motion I made to approve it. And then we're kind of thinking that they were done. And it's like, no, you actually have to make a motion to deny it and give reasons why you deny it. And what you have to do is give findings of, of why you're either approving or disapproving a land use action. And those findings have to be uh, where you use the evidence in the record, so it can't be something that was outside the record, and apply it to the criteria in the laws. So that, are, you know, that we, you know, we may have approved uh, how you um, get approval for changing the zoning from impacted forest land to marginal lands. And we set that up in part of chapter 16 of, of Lane County Code in a legislative role as setting the laws, but that application comes to us from a specific developer for a specific piece of land. We have to either approve or deny it based on the evidence submitted during the record, which the applicant submits a bunch of evidence, neighbors that might not agree with the application might submit evidence to the contrary. You may get third parties like Lamb Watch Lane County that will submit evidence uh, in, in one form or another. All that evidence forms the record. And we have to put together a set of findings backing our approval or our approval and the conditions we're asking for or why we're denying based on that record, applying that criteria that we passed as part of chapter 16. Uh, so that's, you know, a real clear role of commissioners. What's interesting is that we had people come into office that didn't understand they were going to have to perform that role and even a veteran commissioner like 
Pete Sorensen, who had served in the legislature, so he kind of knew what, about the legislative role, say openly during the meeting that most people run for the commissioner's office thinking about the legislative side and, and speak about all the policy they're going to do, and they have no idea that when they get into office, they're going to have to do this quasi-judicial side. And he doesn't like that and thinks it ought to be minimized as much as possible. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. I understood that, and that's one of the reasons why I ran for commissioner. You know, I knew I was going to be making land use decisions. And I also understood that how there is some discretion in how you interpret what the record is and how you apply the criteria, where you can where you can actually um, lean one way or the other um, based on whether you like an application or not, you know, and try and justify an approval or denial um, by how you utilize the, the, the record and how you utilize the criteria. And I've seen it done poorly in my history. And one of the things I want to do is get in there and have somebody that really understood that role and would be fair and unbiased in how they apply the criteria and make good land use decisions. I, I understood that role when I ran for county commissioner and how important that role is because that's people's property we're talking about. Sometimes it's people's property that's been in their family for generations. They have a vested right in that, in that property. And when you're making those land use decisions, you're messing with their, you know, their, their, their personal property, you know? So you really want to do it well. So it was surprising to hear, you know, Commissioner Sorensen want to downplay that role, basically think that people, you know, running don't realize they have it. They should, if they run to the office, they should understand that. And, and in addition, if I wanted to just be a legislature, I'd have ran for the state legislature. Because that's really the only role that a state representative or state senator has is in making law and and they and passing a budget. It's a very legislative role. They don't get to execute the budget. The executive branch does that. C county commissioners are fortunate in that we have an executive role as well as a judicial role. We get to actually deal with our budget and the execution of it and the operations of the county throughout the, you know, the budget year that we pass. We also get to negotiate with the labor unions and have to live with the impact of that negotiation against the budget we passed. There's sort of a disconnect at the state level where you've got the governor and the executive branch negotiating with the labor unions and, and it doesn't really matter if they completely blow up the legislators adopted budget, you know, and, and it causes service, you know, disruptions or layoffs because the, the governor agrees to, you know, whatever increases for whatever um, union they're negotiating with. There's a disconnect between the people that, that develop and pass the budget and the people that execute it. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy my role as a commissioner. And I truly understood that three-part role that that county commissioners have. We legislate, we administrate, and have an executive role, and we have a quasi-judicial role. In fact, at one point, they used to refer to county commissioners as judges, and it was the county court, not the county commission. So, it, you know, it's, and in, in some counties, that are, have a, a, a different organizational structure in Oregon, there still is a county judge. You basically have two commissioners and a judge, and the judge is the chair of the, the board. And that judge in some counties actually holds court. I believe out in uh, Malheal County, they, they run the, the juvenile justice court and serve as on the bench as well as, you know, in, in criminal proceedings. So I was a little surprised as we went through this training, which was good training. It was always a good reminder. Um, 
probably could have taught it myself because um, I'm so familiar with that role. But it was surprising we even had to have the training, you know, and, and that there wasn't an understanding of, of folks running for county commissioner, that that was part of their role and that they didn't get educated in it before they had their first land use action come before them. That they didn't take the time to maybe ask staff, ask our legal counsel, you know, who work for them, you know, in the long run to say, hey, there's this thing coming up, you know, that's this zoning thing coming before the board for a decision. I'm not sure I understand how that decision gets made and what our role is. Can you walk me through that? You know, at least that much. Um, we had to wait and actually schedule training uh, and have the whole board sit there to bring um, two out of the five commissioners up to speed. So a little surprising to me, we had to actually have quasi-judicial training in a board meeting. And even more surprising, our chair with over 20 years of experience and a former state legislator seemed to not understand that that was a role that they, he was taking on when he became a county commissioner and he still bristles at having that role. It's an important role and it's something you should keep in mind, just like the fact that we can appoint vacancies to elected positions, that role as a quasi-judicial decision maker in land use is also important as you think about electing county commissioners, that you need somebody that can bridge all those roles and is going to take each one of them very seriously. And, you know, particularly in land use items, the record in those cases can be hundreds of pages. I can't tell you how many Sunday nights before a Tuesday board meeting I've spent reading hours and hours of land use record before something's going to come before the board. Because I know I'm going to have to make a decision based on that record, not just based on a couple people's three minute testimony during the public hearing, which is also part of the record, but there's that entire written record. Not kind of based on the staff's recommendation or the planning commission's recommendation. You know, we need you, you need to have a full understanding of the record to support your decision when you're in that quasi judicial role. So ranted about land use a little bit there. Six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. If you want to change the subject or you want to talk about land use, flooding, the sheriff appointment, we can go with any of those, the jail. Tour uh, inspection I did today. Just press one so we know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Just press one. You know I mentioned the legislature a little bit on and off through the program today. The fact that we actually appointed a state senator directly from the board of commissioners, uh, and it was on a split vote, by the way. Uh, so um, you know it's. The legislature is meeting right now and things get a little bit crazy. And I just have to say that the Senate approved on a very partisan vote, becoming part of this compact of states for the national public popular vote. And if you don't know what that is, is it's an agreement between states that once they get enough states involved to have 270 electoral college votes tied up in the compact, that they all agree at that point that they will give all of their electoral college votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. Now, mind you, there's this section of the Constitution that says it's illegal for states to form compacts outside of the necessity of time of war and a few other minor cases. Um, so besides the fact that the compact will probably not pass constitutional muster, I wonder if the folks that are supporting this, and it's, it's being supported by the Democrats, 
and it seems to be somewhat based on the issue of a Republican winning the Electoral College vote, which is what's set up in the Constitution of how you select the president, versus who won the national popular vote, which was a Democrat, and they want to try and switch the system. I wonder if they realize what would happen when it's a three-person race, a true three-person race, the Ross Perot scenario, uh, potentially maybe somebody that that uh, owns and the majority stake in a national uh, chain of coffee retailers, maybe, uh, that might take votes away from the, the Democrat side more than the Republican side. And there's some kind of split where uh, in the 2020 election, Donald Trump gets less than 50% of the vote, but more than the Democrat, because the third party coffee guy takes, say, 20% of the vote. Yet in Oregon, the Democrat gets 60% of the vote. Coffee guy and Donald Trump are tied at 20%. Yet under this compact, all of Oregon's Electoral College delegates would go to Donald Trump. I think that just might um, get people a little bit upset in Oregon and maybe make people feel they're being disenfranchised. There's a reason the Electoral College was set up in the Constitution, and I think we should keep it. But it looks like we got a caller on the line. Not sure if he wants to change the subject or not. So we're bringing David on the line. David, what's on your mind? Yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. And I, I wanted to stay on that point, and uh, just wanted to point out that the Democrats seem to suggest things that are all designed to help them win. Everything from switching to a popular vote and even recently lowering the voting age to 16, which, again, is another shameless attempt to try to get, you know, get a bunch of votes. I think the next thing coming down the pipeline is get illegal aliens to be able to get some type of legal status so that they can vote as soon as possible. And it just, it, to me, it's just a shameless attempt on their part to just try to get as many votes as possible or rig the system to guarantee that they win no matter what. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to uh, accuse them of nefarious methods, but I do believe that there's a lot of a lack of thought, but also just, um, yeah, it does seem to be, let's see if we can get voters with a higher propensity to vote Democrat, the ability to vote. Um, and I, I'm not so sure, though, that when you think about some of the illegal aliens coming in, whether they might stay on the on the Democrat side of the aisle, um, because there's some issues like um, right to life that they might split off from the Democratic Party a little bit uh, on, you know, because uh, uh, of, of their, um, you know, their background. So it, it, it'll be interesting, you know, regardless, it, it does seem like one people that aren't legally in this country don't shouldn't be afforded the right, you know, the, of a citizen to vote. Um, you know, there's the rule of law and, you know, the the portion of where we amended our Constitution about equal application of law should apply there. You know, uh, that there shouldn't be many exceptions made for one particular class. As far as 16-year-olds go, um, a couple of weeks ago, I posted on our Facebook page, which is um, KRBN Internet News Talk Radio Facebook page, a short excerpt from an article uh, from Rochester um, Medical School about the teenage brain, which should scare people to death about having teenagers vote, which is basically that the last part of your brain that develops is the rational thought portion, which is the prefrontal lobes and and cortex, um, allows you to understand long-term implications of decisions and do rational thought. When you're a teenager, you think with a part of your brain that's completely tied to emotions, which, you know, as they point out in the article and they go on to explain about how to deal with teenagers, when you ask a teenager after they've done something really boneheaded or something, you, you go, what were you thinking? And you, you get that response from them, I don't know. They, they don't know because they weren't thinking. They were emoting. They were doing something by emotion purely 
They had no idea of the consequences of their decision at the time they made that decision because they weren't using a, a portion of their brain that's not developed yet, which is that capability to judge the long-term consequence of that decision. And that portion of the brain really doesn't develop fully till age 25. In fact, some studies are starting to think that it may develop all the way up to 30. So even 18-year-olds really aren't there yet, which, you know, is one of the reasons why, and this is probably a place where I might, I don't know if David agrees with me or not, I supported raising the age of tobacco purchase to 21. 18-year-olds aren't there yet. At least at 21, you're halfway to having a rational brain. 16, you got none. 18, a, a few, 21, you're halfway there. Um, you know, and if it were up to me, I would also raise the age you can enlist and be drafted to 21. You know, because it, I, I think 18-year-olds aren't making a rational choice to, to serve in the military. And if you had to convince 21-year-olds to serve in an all-volunteer military and then go to war in all these various wars our politicians want to get us involved in all over the place doing nation building and whatever else that they want to do. Um, I think 21 year olds might be a little bit more reluctant and you might have a little bit more, a few less conflicts in the world if it was 21 year olds serving. You know, pretty easy to convince an 18 year old to, to you know, serve and, and, and march into uh, gunfire. Uh, yeah, but a 21-year-old that has that rational thought might be a little bit different to get them to serve, unless the politicians are being judicious about where they're choosing to use the military. So, David, I appreciate the call on, on the uh, national popular vote. Anything else you wanted to chime in with before you go? Yeah, and to your, to your last point there about the whole issue with the brain, um, I think you probably agree with this. Like for myself, I was basically a progressive all through high school until the end of college. And once I got out of college, I became a conservative. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I think most people are very liberal in their views when they're younger. And as they get older, like you said, when the rational parts of the brain develop, they realize, you know, that conservatism makes more sense, it's more practical. And unfortunately, I think the Democrats know that and they want to take advantage of things. And that's why they seem to be going out of their way to get people who they know would be moved by emotionalism, which is why women vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, certain minority groups that they push that whole victim narrative on, that they try to drum up their emotions to try to get them to think emotionally versus rationally and logically, and that's a problem in our country. And I think without the help yeah. of the media, the Democrats wouldn't win an election for the next 30 years. It would be like what happened in the 80s with Reagan all the time. But unfortunately, they have a monopoly in the media for the most part, with the exception of Fox, and they're able to get away with their propaganda, and people fall for it because we have a, a society that's dumbing down, and people, you know, men are acting like women all of a sudden. They're becoming emotional, and that's why things are the way they are. Yeah. Well, I, I believe my call screener and producer extraordinaire might disagree with the uh, the, the, the women always voting on emotion, uh, but <laughs> but uh, oh, that's just I, a lot. I, that's just a I, psychological I, fact. That's not like a. And I've been opinion. Yeah. Men think more logically and rationally. Women happen to think more emotionally. But that's just yeah. a. I mean, it's not like it's a. It's a. It's an insult. Yeah, it, it, down. It, it's part of the. It's it's part of the nurturing that is put into them by by Mother Nature that that helps our species survive. And and the lack of that nurturing was part of what made men go out and hunt dangerous animals <laughs> when when we were hunter gatherers. Um, so. It, it's, it does, it, I, and it is interesting because I know that at least when I was 16 and 18, I was making some pretty poor decisions, um, you know, about everything from being a good student at times and studying to, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the partying that I did in college that probably was, was not very smart. But, you know, pretty much not too long after I was 21 and, and graduated college, I got pretty smart about all that, left a lot of that behind. And, and uh, you know, there's, it's not necessarily being progressive and getting conservative. It's just having the ability to understand the consequences. And you're also outside of that indoctrination bubble that you have in these schools, which we know today are basically controlled by leftists. And so once you get out of that yeah. indoctrination system, then you're allowed to get back to thinking rationally, using critical thinking again. 
you realize that it doesn't hold up, and that's what the left needs. If you notice, the left always tries to get a monopoly on news, media, education, whatever way they can control information, because they know left on it to its own and have to you know, have a free and open debate. It can't hold up under legit scrutiny. I mean, it can't, it, there's no sound logic and reason behind most of their ideas. And so they try to avoid critical examination by any means necessary, and they don't want critical thinking to be in our population because they know people will reject what they say. So, But I, I don't know. Without the media, I'm, I'm just so certain that there's no way they would have any massive political control without having the media basically be their propaganda arm. Yeah, I, and it, it's somewhat sad what's, what's happened with the media has become um, we're, we're losing – local newspapers because they can't compete with, with um, Facebook and, and uh, Google. And, and, and so people stop buying newspapers. So the actual work of reporting has gotten so poor where there's not uh, invest, you know, the, the staffs have gotten cut back. The local TV stations have, have, you know, if you notice most of their reporters, at least here in Eugene are, are under the age of, of, of 30. At best, most of them are straight out of college and not from the area, and have very little background to to and history to report from. And it, it it's sad because it it's it's not just who's in the media, but it's also just how poor the reporting's gotten, how how it easy it is just to get a story written by putting a um, news release out as an organization. And that news release becomes the news story rather than somebody gathering objective story information and publishing a story so people can stay educated. So there's a combination of things going on that lead to a a fairly uneducated public. Um, And, you know, we've been as as a society um, making the ability, you know, news was always a lost leader for networks. And, and and something that they they put money into and didn't get a lot of money back out of, but it's gone so far that direction, you know, so so you know far that direction. That the only way they can make money is to be so sensational that people will watch. And, but can and we got, have uh, trustworthy, objective news when eighty-five percent of news journalists are registered Democrats? Yeah, and that that's true. And part of that sensationalism is not reporting necessarily news, but just having opinion presented as part of a news channel. I mean, even oh, Fox like, News, like how they just how make much, up stuff about Trump on a daily basis, just blame yeah, speculation, just, just how they yeah, feel just, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, discussion, panel discussions, and all that stuff about an item that supposedly was in news, all that discussion is not news, it's opinion about the news. And right. if you watch Fox News, there's very little news presented. Most of it's talking about the news that was presented, <laughs> which is opinion. And the opinion can be very sensationalizing and, and the more um, far off on one side, the more sensational you know, the arguments right. get between people. And they want to show like, that, you know, to get like ratings. MSNBC, right, and CNN, how yeah. they for the last two and a half years, by basically ninety percent of their coverage had to do with the whole Russian collusion story, how that was yeah. like the basis of their programming. Yeah. So, did you, did you feel like it was kind of an embarrassment to the news media when it was found out not to be true, and they kind of left with egg on their face? Because that's without that, I mean, what, what else did they really talk about for the last two years? Yep. That's very true, and, and I have to agree with you. And and that's just part of you know where, where's the bench strength for the media if we're if you've got 25 year old news reporters and the the newspapers are going under left and right and being bought up by national syndicates. So we're getting news stories run in Eugene that were written in Florida. You know that that's really a sad state of affairs. Well, we're running out of time here on the Bose Nose Show. David, thank you for calling in and listening to the Bose Nose Show. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, you too. So I will end it there, you know, a little bit about, you know, my concern with the local news media, you know, because 
people may not know, I am the son of a CBS News reporter and, and, and really feel for the state of, of national news media and local news media in particular because the real news is local. Everything comes down to local. And we're local here on the Bo's Nose Show. Hope you enjoyed listening today. We'll be back next week here at 4 o'clock on Wednesday live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week.